Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, you are listening to yet another episode of the KWUR Theater of the Air. My name is David Reinstrom. And I, of course, am David Brunel Brutman. Is my microphone on? Yes. No, I mean, are, are things happening when I talk into them? I have no idea. No. La 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 la. I'm going to try this one. Ah, I'm... <laughs> I'm 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 twin fisting, as it were. Like when you have when, when I don't think you can say that on the radio. Well, it's not a filthy thing. I'm talking about when you have two bottles of of beverage and you drink from. I've never done this. Is that a thing? It, I don't know it, it if is. that's a it's, thing. It's it's a thing done by horrible, merciless reprobates, but not by you or I. No, never. Well, actually, never. Anyway, hello. You're listening to the Keyword yes, Theater of the Air on KWUR Clayton ninety point three FM. Um, you can also listen online at www.kwar.com. Stop laughing at me. He's spe- okay, he's got like two microphones in front of his face coming at him from opposite angles. I don't know which one works. It's like a surround sound setup yes. or something. Okay, okay. They, everyone, both, they both work. Everyone turn up your stereos. You ready for this? No, don't do it. David in stereophonic sound. Here we go, Doppler effect. Yeah, see, here's the problem with that. Oh, it's a the mono channel. Is, that both of those are on a mono channel, and it's the same channel. I don't care. So what's You our... always have to pee in my Cheerios. <laughs> so, uh, what's our theme you today, You always have David? to throw burning dice on my parade. What's our theme today on the K-Word Theater of the Air? G-Men! Spooks and suits! Indeed, we've got government agents of all stripes. Some of them wearing stripes. Like pinstripes, I guess, probably. I don't know, is that a thing? No, I guess gangsters wear pinstripes. No, uh, G-Men wear black suits. They're black, black suits. They're always the men in black. Black suits and fedoras. Yeah. Because, uh, in this case, I think both I, I think both of our selections take place in the 40s? No? Um... I'm not sure exactly when H.P. Lovecraft stuff takes place. I would have said 20s or 30s. 30s? Uh, actually, I think Lovecraft is probably the 30s and uh, our other selection. It's from the 50s. Which is a decoder ring theater. Or late 40s. Episode is uh, late 40s. Late 40s? Like 49? Or, or early 50s. I always got the sense. I always got the sense early fifties. Hmm. That's that's the sense. What, what we're have. talking about, of course, is uh, Blackjack Justice, which is one of the uh, the other offerings from Decoder Ring Theater's um, wonderful series. Uh, we've played some some of their stuff before in the form of the Red Panda, uh, yes, Toronto's indeed. or Canada's greatest superhero, the Red Panda. But this is the first time we've ever played any blackjack. It is, isn't it? Yeah. So we'll we'll get to that when we get to that. We're going to finish up the uh, um, the H.P. Lovecraft uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth series that we've been playing here for the past couple of weeks. Yes, indeed. Uh, this is the epilogue. and there The is a- final chilling installment. Woo! <laughs> so if you forgot, uh, the frame story of this whole series is that our, uh, our hero is talking to um, a representative from the FBI. Uh, yeah, I think he's an FBI guy. So, I, what's his name? Olmstead is is talking to. No, Olmstead's the name of the. I think Olmstead is the main. Olmstead's the guy, guy, but I, I, you know, and then he's talking to the FBI agent. Yes, which relates to our theme. So, thrilling, chilling conclusion to the Shadow of Rinsmith. Tales of intrigue, adventure.
adventure and the mysterious occult that will stir your imagination and make your very blood run cold. Dark Adventure Radio Theatre with your host, Chester Langfield. Today's episode, H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth. A young man's journey takes him to a dilapidated seafront town rife with deformed characters and ungodly secrets. Can he escape the terrifying town with his life? Or will the sinister residents of Innsmouth and their hellish allies drag him down to a horrid fate beneath the waves? But first, a word from our sponsor. You know, folks, whenever I feel glum or weary after a long day in the studio, I get my energy back by lighting up a fleur-de-lis cigarette. The road to pleasure is thronged with smokers who have discovered the superior fragrance and mellow mildness of fleur-de-lis. You'll enjoy their pleasing, energizing effect, and they never get on your nerves. Fleur-de-lis. Smoke as many as you want. And now, Dark Adventure Radio Theatre presents H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth. You were lucky to get out of there alive, Olmstead. Lucky? <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Now, sometime afternoon the following day, I awoke on the tracks. It was raining a little. I staggered out to the roadway, but I saw no trace of any prints in the fresh mud. The fishy odor, too, was gone. I looked, but didn't see anyone. And you walked the tracks all the way to Rowley? That's right. I reported it to the Arkham Police, but they said it would be an issue for the Massachusetts State Police. See, I don't think they believed me. That's when they sent me to you. And it's a good thing they did. Are the rumors true, McGraw? About a submarine firing torpedoes into the deeps off Devil Reef? Let's just say that the government's been very thorough about cleaning up this mess in Innsmouth. In fact, that's why I'm here today. We've been keeping an eye on you. On me? We suspect you haven't quite put Innsmouth behind you. What do you mean? We know you've been doing some genealogical research. Oh, yes. Well, after Innsmouth, I gave up the rest of my tour. But when I got to Arkham, I tried to collect some information about my family. The curator of the historical society there, Mr. E. Lapham Peabody, was very courteous about assisting me. So, your grandmother is Eliza Orne. Something wrong, Mr. Peabody? Years ago, I helped, well, he would have been your maternal uncle with this same research. Your grandmother's a bit of a local mystery among the genealogically inclined. How do you mean? There's been plenty of discussion about the marriage of her father, Benjamin Orne, since the ancestry of his bride was peculiarly puzzling. Your great-grandmother, she would have been. She was understood to have been an orphaned marsh of New Hampshire, a cousin of the Essex County Marshes. But she'd been educated in France and knew very little of her family. A guardian had deposited funds in a Boston bank to maintain her and her French governess. But that guardian's name was unfamiliar to Arkham people. That's the mystery? Well, you see, no one's been able to place the recorded parents of the young woman among the known families of New Hampshire. It seems the records may have been falsified. Some say she was from another branch of the Marsh family. She certainly had the true Marsh eyes. Marsh eyes? Oh, you know them when you see them. You've got them yourself. Anyway, she died early at the birth of her only child, 
your grandmother. Wait, are you saying I'm a Marsh? No doubt about it. I see. I went directly home to Toledo to recuperate from my ordeal. In September, I entered my final year at Oberlin, but you know that from when you and your men came to see me on campus. Mm-hmm. Just following up on some leads. Just like you've been following up on your family history, right? Well, you probably know I spent a week with my late mother's family in Cleveland last year. I did not relish the notion of a week in that depressing household, but I hope to learn more family history while among the Williamsons. My mother had never encouraged my visiting her parents as a child. My Arkham-born grandmother had seemed strange and almost terrifying to me. I was eight years old when she disappeared. They say she wandered off in grief after the suicide of my Uncle Douglas, her eldest son. He'd shot himself after a trip to New England. The same trip, no doubt, which had caused him to be recalled by Mr. Peabody. Douglas resembled her, and I never liked him either. Something about their staring, unblinking expressions. My mother and Uncle Walter had their father's looks, though my poor cousin Lawrence, Walter's son, looked just like my grandmother. Yes, I spoke with your Uncle Walter. He's been very concerned about his son, your cousin Lawrence. And you. Your uncle showed you some things that once belonged to your grandmother, didn't he? Oh, yes, Agent McGraw. He did. So, Robert, researching the family tree, huh? I'm just putting the pieces together. Well, I have some of your mom's old family papers on the Orns. She had a safe deposit box. I think there's stuff in there, too. We'll go downtown and have a look. You feeling all right? I heard you fell ill back east last summer. Uh, it's just nerves, really. I'm better now. Thanks. I, I meant to ask, um, how's Lawrence doing? Oh, he's still in the sanitarium over in Canton. They do the best they can for him, but... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, what can you do? Going over the letters and pictures on the orange side, I began to acquire a kind of terror of my own ancestry. I struggled not to think about it. My uncle took me to my mother's bank. The safe deposit box is here. When you've finished, just lock it up and we'll return it to the vault. Thank you. Why did Mom keep papers in the safe deposit box? Oh, she had some of her grandma's old jewelry. There we go. Now let's see what she had in here. Here's someone's marriage certificate. Uh -huh. Photos. What do you think? A graduation? Yeah, it could be. Uh, what's in that cardboard box? That? Oh, well, it's that's probably where she put your great-grandmother's old jewelry. Really? I wonder... Oh, they're weird old things. Grandma would look at them, but even she wouldn't wear them. Really, they're hideous. Hideous? May I? Are you all right, Robert? You're shaking. I'm fine. Fine. I think this one's a tiara. See? <sighs> From that day on, my life has been a nightmare of brooding and apprehension. Is that what you came here to learn, Agent McGraw? Your great-grandmother was a Marsh whose husband lived in Arkham. And Zadok said that the daughter of Obed Marsh by a monstrous mother was married to an Arkham man through a trick. He also muttered about me having eyes like Captain Obed's. You know we were never able to question Zadok Allen. By the time my men raided Innsmouth, he had already disappeared. Imagine that. Obed Marsh, my own great-great-grandfather. Who, or what, then, was my great-great-grandmother? I think you already know the answer to that, Olmstead. You should have left it all alone. No, Agent McGraw, it's you who should have left it alone. Olmstead, put down the gun. What are you doing? No sudden moves, please. I bought this pistol months ago intending to kill myself, as my Uncle Douglas did when he, too, learned the truth. Easy now, Olmstead. This is all nothing to get worked up over. The, the jewelry might have been bought from some Innsmouth sailor. And that staring-eyed look you thought you saw in the faces of your grandmother and uncle is sheer fancy on you. But your then mind. why did my uncle kill himself after an ancestral quest in New England? 
No, if this is all sheer fancy, then why are you here now? We can help you, Olmstead. Put down the gun. No, McGraw, there's no help for me anymore. For more than two years, I fought off this sheer fancy. Oh, in the winter of 1930, the dreams began. Great watery spaces opened out before me, and I seemed to wander through titanic sunken porticos and labyrinths of weedy cyclopean walls with grotesque fishes as my companions. Then the other shapes began to appear, filling me with nameless horror the moment I awoke. But during the dreams, they did not horrify me at all. I was one with them, wearing their trappings, treading their aqueous ways, and praying monstrously at their sea-bottom temples. Homestead? Some frightful influence I felt was seeking gradually to drag me out of the sane world into unnameable abysses of blackness and alienage. Some odd nervous affliction had me in its grip, and I found myself at times almost unable to shut my eyes. I saw my face in the mirror with mounting alarm. My father and uncle seemed to notice it too, for they began looking at me almost affrightedly. What was taking place in me? Could it be that I was coming to resemble my grandmother and Uncle Douglas? Is that why they called you, McGraw? Homestead, please. We all just want to help you. Give me the gun, please. Don't do anything foolish. One night I dreamed I met my grandmother under the sea. She lived in a phosphorescent palace of many terraces, with gardens of strange leprous corals and grotesque brachiate efflorescences, and, and welcomed me. She had changed. See, as those who take to the water change, and told me she'd never died. Instead, she'd gone to a spot her dead son had learned about, and had leapt to a realm whose wonders he'd spurned with a smoking pistol. This was to be my realm, too. I could not escape it. I would never die, but would live with those who had lived before man ever walked the earth. I met also that which had been her grandmother. For eighty thousand years, Pithaya Lehi had lived in Yohanneth She'd gone back after Obed Marsh was dead. Yohanneth was not destroyed when your pathetic submarines shot death into the sea, McGraw. It was hurt, but not destroyed. The deep ones can never be destroyed. Oh, for the present they rest, but someday they will rise again for the tribute great Cthulhu craves. It will be a city greater than Innsmouth next time. Oh, they've planned to spread. Oh, and have brought up that which will help them. But now they must wait once more. Olmstead, I'm warning you for the last time. I see you have a gun as well. Do you think I'm frightened? <laughs> last night I had a dream in which I saw Shoggoth for the first time. That's a sight to set me awake in a frenzy of screaming. Yeah, this morning the mirror definitely told me I have acquired the Innsmouth look. I'm not afraid of you, McGraw. I feel queerly drawn toward the sea deeps instead of fearing them. See, I hear and do strange things in sleep and awake with a kind of exultation. I do not need to wait for the full change as most have waited. If I did, you and my father would probably shut me up in a sanitarium like my poor little cousin. Stupendous and unheard of splendors await me below, and I shall seek them soon. Yeah, relay, Cthulhu Fatagan. No, I shall not shoot myself. I cannot be made to shoot myself. I shall plan my cousin's escape from that madhouse, and together we shall go to marvel-shadowed Innsmouth. We shall swim out to that reef in the sea and dive down through black abysses to Cyclopean and many-columned Yohanneth Lay. And in that lair of the Deep Ones, we shall dwell amidst wonder and glory forever. You've been listening to H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth, brought to you by our sponsor, Florida Lee, the cigarette made from the finest tobaccos. Florida Lee, a boon for a breathless age. Until next week, 
This is Chester Langfield reminding you to never go anywhere alone. If it looks bad, don't look. And save the last bullet for yourself. The Shadow Over Innsmouth was adapted for radio and produced by Sean Branny and Andrew Lehman. Original music by Troy Sterling Neese. The Dark Adventure Ensemble featured Leslie Baldwin, Sean Branny, Casey Camp, Mark Colson, Dan Conroy, Steve Coons, Matt Foyer, McCarran Kelly, Andrew Lehman, Barry Lynch, John McKenna, Josh Temke, and Noah Wagner. Tune in next week for Fates of the Ancients, a Nate Ward adventure. Dark Adventure Radio Theater is a production of the HPLHS Broadcasting Group, a subsidiary of HPLHS Incorporated, copyright 1931, plus 77. And remember, folks, the next time you want to travel to an exotic, fabulous location, consider Yohanathle. We have submersibles waiting and ready to take you into the yawning maw of hell whenever you so choose. Call your local representative at 1-800-666-6666. Yohanathle. Cosmic terror at an affordable price. Again, in Cthulian. This is the K Word Theater of the Air here on KWUR 90.3 FM. We're going to take a short musical break. Oh, yeah. She's well acquainted with the touch of the velvet hand Like a lizard on a windowpane The man in the crowd with the multicolored mirrors on his hobnail boots Lying with his eyes while his hands are busy working overtime a soap impression of his wife Which he ate and donated to the National Trust I need a fix Cause I'm going down Down to the bits That I left up Down I'm going down Mother Superior jumped the gun 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 Mother Superior jumped the gun
Approximately 7,000 high school students drop out every school day, which translates to one in three students in our country. If someone you know is thinking of dropping out, talk to them. It could be the one thing that keeps them going. Go to boostup.org to learn more. Brought to you by the U.S. Army, the Ad Council, and KWUR Clayton 90.3 FM. You're listening to the KWUR Theater of the Air here on KWUR 90.3 FM. KWUR Clayton 90.3 FM. No, 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 that was the wrong noise. It should have been more of a, more of a doof, 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 doof? Yeah, more of a doof, you know. So, question. Yes. Um, who died at the end of that? Was it McGraw or Olmstead? It's a mystery. Uh. You don't know. Ambiguity. Ambiguity. The devil's volleyball. I say that all the time. Do you? That's and emo Phillips. And then people Phillips. look at me, oh. and they you, are confused. Do you say it in that voice? Uh, pretty much. Not not quite that crazy of a of a voice. Oh well, that's why emo, emo Phillips, Phillips does have a pretty crazy like. voice. I want to hear an interview with him where he's using a normal voice. He doesn't have a normal voice. I I am sure he. Ha- you know, if nope. Gilbert Gottfried has a normal voice. Oh, that's I hate that so much. You hate knowing that? I hate knowing that Gilbert Gottfried has a normal voice. He, you guys, he doesn't he doesn't really sound like this all the time. Ah, Jafar. Ah, I'm hateful and irascible. No. It's, that makes me that makes me like sad on a very deep level. He's he's a frequent contributor to the Howard Stern show. We've probably talked about this. Uh, and I I heard a, a like a voicemail he left Howard one time. Howard Stern like played it on the you know, it was on YouTube or something, and he's like, I hate to do this to you guys, but I'm going to ruin something for you, Gilbert. And then he plays the tape, and Gilbert Gottfried's like, Hi Howard, this is Gilbert. Um, I was just calling about brunch on Sunday. I. I would love to come with you. Um, I was wondering if I could bring my daughter. Um, I figured he wouldn't have a problem with it, but she wanted to bring her boyfriend. Anyway, give me a call. I'll talk to you later. That, that is cosmically disappointing. I, I, it satisfies me. Really? Yes. Look, take consolation in the fact that Harvey Feierstein actually talks like this. Does he? Yes. Okay. He's got a fry. That's that's okay. Does that that cosmically balance it out? Yeah, I guess that balances it. I can move on with my life. Okay. And I can move on with the show. Good. Hey. This week. Nice. Yeah? Nice. You see that? Yeah. It's it's the segue. Ooh. Yeah? Right in there. Mm. I have, like, overlapping, flowing kinds of That's the first time I've seen you look good on a segue. Uh... Well, you killed it. Good work. <laughs> I was talking about, I was making a mall cop joke. So this week. I hate you. <laughs> so this week on the show, we are playing radio theater related to G-Men. The Men in Black. The CIA. The FBI. The NSA. And other uh, spooky governmental the SEC. organizations. The SEC. The NSF. The FCC. The MPAA. NPR. The IRS. Uh, AIG? No, that's not a... <gasps> hey, snappy, uh, snappy satire there. I was just I was naming like, things with three letters. Oh, see, so you should have left, you should have pretended that <laughs> you were being satirical. Because I was going to say, hey, that's not a government agency. Hey. That's good. Snap. That's pretty good. Hmm. So what have we got now? You're a, you're a cutting edge culture satirist and you don't even know it, but your feet show it because we'll complete that later. 
when I have something clever to say. Next, we have Blackjack Justice. Yes. Um, Blackjack Justice is another fine program from the folks at Dakota Ring Theater. Uh, Dakota Ring Theater are the people who do the Red Panda adventures. We've played Red Panda a couple of times. Yes. And they Red Panda, also, of course, the superhero who hides his secret identity as one of Toronto's most wealthy men. Yes. And with the help of his sidekick and super hot chauffeur, Kit Baxter, also known as the Flying Squirrel, they fight crime. Yes, but that's too much exposition. They also do a program <laughs> called Blackjack Justice, which is a noir pastiche, basically. Sure. Uh, in which Jack Justice and his partner, Trixie Dixon, girl, girl detective, detective, solve various sordid mysteries. And the gimmick of this show, which we really like, is that the monologue, you know, the noir monologue, it was a dark and stormy night. Dave stared at me from across the station. The rain. His eyes glistening with fury. Beat down on I the window. I couldn't windows. help it if he cried all the time. Like a... He couldn't help being a pansy. Tinfoil. I ripped off my shirt. Bagel. <laughs> Exposing glistening oiled pectorals. Oh, wait, wrong genre. So in Blackjack Justice... I apologize. Justice, I did not read ahead. Th- it, that is enough. Yes, sir. That is enough of you and your glistening pectorals for today. <laughs> I can't even. I can't even talk anymore. They make a noise when I expose them. Look. So in Blackjack ah! Justice, the monologue, the detective's inner monologue, is handed off between the two detectives, yes. Jack and Trixie. Correct. Uh, to I think excellent effect. And in this particular episode, you're going to hear them narrating their stories to two different uh, people. One of whom is a government agent. Hmm. Most curious. Most curious indeed. Here's Blackjack Justice and The Devil You Know. Once again, Decoder Ring Theater presents another page from the casebook of that master of mystery, that sultan of sleuthing, Martin Bracknell's immortal detective, Blackjack Justice, starring Christopher Mott as Jack and Andrea Lyons as Trixie Dixon, Girl Detective. There's a popular notion that passes for wisdom that says it's better to deal with the devil you know than the devil you don't. Aside from making a nifty, if underused, slogan for re-election campaigns everywhere, I've never really seen the logic of that one. Not that there are many old saws that you couldn't argue with given the time and inclination. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning, for instance. Oh, I know full well that it refers to atmospheric conditions and the predicting of inclement weather patterns, but it's also dangerously dependent on how you interpret sailors delight. Or maybe that's just me. But as for our devils, known and otherwise, there was an onion in that ointment, too. If you deal with the devil you know, there is a comfort level to it. You have a general idea of what you're in for and how badly you're likely to come out. But there's always a chance, isn't there? Always an outside chance that the other devil, the one you don't know, isn't a devil at all, but a door-to-door pitchfork salesman with a bad skin condition. And if you don't spin the wheel, you'll never know, will you? Naturally, the preferred modus operandi would be to not deal with any sort of devil at all. To be the sort that favors plain speaking, honest dealing, and possible pious living for good measure. But the only chance there was of that ever happening would be for old Square John I to replace the hand-painted sign on the smoked glass window that read Justice and Dixon Private Investigations with another one that said, Gone fishing forever. Please drop dead. 
and barring divine intervention or the demise of wealthy and previously unknown uncles, it didn't look like we were ever going to hang that one up. It had been a typical case, in that we'd floundered around blind for a while and got in hopelessly over our heads. And when that grand moment happened, given the choice between devils, we decided to split the difference. I decided to spin the wheel and hope for the pitchfork salesman, which left Jack in the clutches of the devil we knew all too well. Justice, if you don't give me some straight answers, and I mean soon, I'm going to take my old nightstick out of retirement for one last rumba. Don't do it, Sabian. I've got an awful hard head, and old Hickory has a wife and six popsicle sticks at home. Let me ask you something. No joke. Well, there's always a first time. On average, what is the life expectancy of your clients? See, this is why we take lost cat cases. Little old ladies pad the stats. Cute. It's not enough you drop another corpse in my lap. Lieutenant, hand to God. I just found it lying on the floor. What you do with them after you pick them up is none of my business. You're not going to make me come over this desk, are you? Boy, I sure hope not. I'm not sure it'd be that pretty. I will say this very softly, and only once. You'd like me to begin at the beginning? In a nutshell. Very well, then. Billions of years ago, the Earth cooled... Justice! Yes, dear? Not that far back. Ah, why didn't you say so? Not to put too fine a point on it, but it was a day very much like any other. The office was still as a freshly minted corpse, and nearly half as charming. The girl detective was shuffling papers from her in-tray to her out-tray and back again, in the apparent hope that I would feel compelled to join her in a brisk round of pointless busy work. Fortunately, my resolve held firm in spite of the increasingly withering looks with which she attempted to catch my eye. In spite of this exercise, I had sufficient mental energy to gaze out the window and conduct a thorough rethinking of the career choices that had brought me to this point. But then where else could scratching the ears of Mighty King, the crime-busting dog, constitute a good day's work? Sadly, this reverie was broken by the unexpected opening of the grey-green door that proclaimed the words Justice and Dixon, Private Investigations, to a largely disinterested world. Good afternoon. Is it already? Jeez, I worked right through my lunch. I beg your pardon? Please ignore him, sir. Lord knows I wish I could. If this is a bad time... Bad times are our bread and butter, sir. Please have a seat. Well, I... Can I offer you a cup of coffee, Mr... Lever. Harold Lever. I'm Jack Justice. This is my partner, Miss Dixon. Trixie, please. How can we help you, sir? I find myself in a spot of difficulty, and as I'm a visitor to your fair city, I'm ill-equipped to resolve the matter entirely by myself. Ah, the businessman's special. I beg your pardon? Don't be embarrassed, Mr. Lever. There's been quite a bit of this around lately. What hotel? What? What hotel? And do you know if the girl got pictures, or is it just her say-so? Jack. Uh, Mr. Justice, perhaps you could not understand me quite so quickly. I'm sorry? Uh, there is neither a hotel nor a girl in my story, sir. Oops. Smooth, slick. Smooth. Why don't you put the coffee on like a good girl? Yes, Mr. Dixon. Right away, Mr. Dixon. Whoa. He just assumed Lever was being blackmailed? What's that? Your partner. Seems like a sensitive matter to blurt out like that. It does, doesn't it? For the record, Agent Marino, these things have a rhythm to them. When you interrupt me, I lose my place. My apologies. Carry on. Are all feds this well-mannered? They make us finish charm school before they give us our guns. Aren't you going to write any of this down? You haven't said anything I can't remember yet, or that I might want to. Fair point. In old Square Jaw's defense, he was right. There was a ring of business girls putting the squeeze on out-of-towners lately, and I don't just mean in the regular way. Jack and I were on pretty good terms with most of the local house dicks, and we've made a fair chunk of our recent chump change persuading the girls to lay off. 
Don't get me wrong, he jumped the gun, embarrassed our prospective client, and was, in no uncertain terms, an idiot. But that's not really the point. I settled Harold Lever into a chair and began to soothe him in the time-honored fashion by taking a seat on Jack's desk opposite him and hypnotizing him with the slow, subtle swing of the girl detective's gumshoot gams. He was promptly pacified in a jittery sort of way and began to spill his story. It stood out from the usual standard in that it wasn't the least bit sordid and sounded like the whole truth and nothing but the truth, which of course made us instantly suspicious. So you see, when the shipment was a week late, I made inquiries. The man at the depot in Potterfield says it never arrived. I've known him for years. He's very trustworthy. The man I bought the bats from says they shipped two weeks ago. He's out of state, but he's promised to send me a copy of his shipping invoice. There's nowhere else they could have gone. Unfortunately, Mr. Lever, there are a number of places they could have gone, and someone seems to be taking advantage of that. The truck carrying the shipment stopped at a warehouse here in the city. According to the shipping company, the crates were to have been moved from one truck to another and been en route to Potterfield in a day at most. But the man at the warehouse says he has no record of them ever arriving. And you think he's lying? What other explanation is there? If you'd like us to find out, our fee is thirty-nine ninety-five a day plus expenses. Of course. You will take a retainer. We would normally request two days. Yes, of course. Twenty, forty, eighty dollars. Jack, would you draw up a contract for Mr. Lever? Sure thing. I just have one or two questions. Jack. Hold your water tricks. Mr. Lever, these five cases of baseball bats, how much are they really worth? To me, they're worth a great deal, Mr. Justice. In a few weeks, everyone in the county will start preparing for the new baseball season. If they can't fill their entire order with us, what's to stop them from taking all their business elsewhere? Sure, but... We're a small town, sir. But there are other sporting goods stores in the county. Yeah, but... I have customers that have been buying from us since the store opened 12 years ago. If another store gains their trust and loyalty, I'd be ruined. The worth of these bats far exceeds the simple monetary value of these five crates. Though that in itself is considerable to a man of my limited means. But the shipment wasn't insured. No, sir. Why not? Jack, your receipt, Mr. Lever, and ten cents is your change. Oh, thank you. Jack, is that contract ready? Yes, Trixie. I typed it all up on my invisible typewriter. I hate you. Excellent. The insurance, Mr. Lever. I have never had a problem like this before, Mr. Justice. I have ordered equipment from around the country without ever having to rely on the extra expense of insurance. Possibly why someone tried to get fresh. If they recognized you for a small operator, they might have hoped to make a few extra dollars on the side without any insurance men poking around. I hadn't thought of that. But since I have no proof which of three states the crime actually happened in, I feared the local police might be less than helpful. Probably right. That's their slogan, less than helpful stenciled right on the side of their prowl cars. I'm sorry? That rustle of carbon paper tells me that your contract is almost ready, Mr. Lever. We'll be in touch when we know something. I didn't like it. And for all her glowering over the typewriter, I could tell Trixie didn't either. Harold Lever's margins were too thin to shell out for insurance on the shipment. But he dropped 80 bucks like we'd asked him for the lint out of his pockets. Since her ladyship had raised the rates, we hadn't had a single client that hadn't dickered us down to our original 35 a day but not Mr. Lever, and the alleged crime was too screwy. I could see a shipment arriving a few bats light. That kind of thing can happen along the way. I could even see a whole crate going astray if there was a mistake or somebody got ambitious. But five crates? This was either a smudge on somebody's paperwork, or there was something in those crates other than bats. I didn't know which, but for all Trixie's worrying, I wasn't about to talk us out of a fee either. If Harold Lever wanted the warehouse investigated, investigated they would be. 
Justice for the love of my Aunt Minnie, would you come to something like the point? We haven't hit the first corpse yet, and I've already lost the will to live. Don't despair, my dear lieutenant. We're coming to the warehouse. This is a good bit and features me at my most heroic. Oh, Christmas. We'd had an uncharacteristic bit of good luck. The shipping depot in question was attached to a warehouse on 38th Street. The owner's name was Russell Shorty McVetty, and since Shorty loved not wisely but too well, and too often, old square John I had handled his first, second, and fourth divorce jobs. We got the job done quickly and didn't pad the expense report enough so you'd notice, and that meant we were all right in Shorty's book. If hard luck held, we would soon have a solid line on our client's missing shipment. And what do you think the odds of our luck holding were? Aren't you clever? Can I help you? Is Shorty in? Who is asking? Jack Justice. Never heard of you. Tragic. I'll have words with my press agent. Fur shall fly, I assure you. Get lost. Is this how you talk to Mr. McVetty's friends? Couldn't say. He don't seem to have a lot of them. What he does have a lot of is smart punks who come knocking. So blow. You're starting to get under my skin, Sonny. Ain't that a crying shame. Can I get a word in edgewise here? He's my guest. He's not really my type. So what's this? You bat your eyelashes at me and I'm supposed to play nice? Oh, kitten. You don't really think I'd let you play nice that quickly, do you? Well, I... Nor am I inclined to bat my eyelashes at just anyone, you know. I didn't. That is... So now that you look closely, I'm sure you notice what full, lush eyelashes they are, aren't they? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Lord. What's that? Don't be jealous, Tiger. He means nothing to me. What? What's your name? Vin. Vin. Just like it says on your coveralls. I do like it when men wear labels. So much easier to keep them organized. Yeah? So, Shortian? Sure. I guess so. You guess so? The light's been on in his office since before I got here. I always thought he was more of a night owl. Yeah, I guess it is kind of funny. But his door's closed. When Shorty closes his door, there's a good reason. You mean you need a good reason to disturb him? I guess so. We're on the trail of some missing bats. Bats? Like for baseball? No, we're from the zoo. What? Yes, for baseball. Oh. You feds? Feds. Why would we be feds? Couldn't say. The last guy was. Little guy? No chin? Nah. He was here too, yesterday. Then the G-man last night. Well, stop the case. I want to get off. Why would the feds be sniffing around some missing baseball bats? Couldn't say. But he flashed the badge, and that was good enough reason to knock on Shorty's door. Now I know what trumps your eyelashes. Stow it. You see a name on the badge? Yeah. Marino. Why? Anybody you know? I don't move in those kind of rarefied circles, and I like it that way. What's this about? Well, you're never going to find out standing here. Uh, Hey, you can't go up there. You could holler for the boys, Vin, but it's just going to get you a nice big hole in your head, all right? Whoa! Jack! I'm just going to step inside and say hello to my old pal Shorty. Nice and simple. Sure, sure. Don't get excited. Thank you. Sorry to get pushy, kid. But if the suits are into this, I want off in a hurry. And the fastest way to do that is on the other side of this door. Oh. What is it? Trixie, be a deer and ring for Lieutenant Sabian, would you? What is it? What is it usually? Oh. What's wrong? Don't get too excited, Tiger. But it looks like Shorty McVetty's been murdered. Oh, hi, Peter. Hello, my dear. What's uh, with the magician's outfit? Oh, this. 
Since the stranger is so popular, I've been asked to promote this new magic diet elixir. Magic diet elixir? What's in it? The man said it was mostly a petroleum extract from a certain species of ophidium. Ophidium petroleum? Yes. You mean snake oil? In a nutshell. Peter, no offense to you or your pointy wizard's hat, but there's no magic behind weight loss. Wait. Are you calling me fat? Look, if you want to lose weight, do some research first. Visit fastandsimpleweightloss.com. Fast and simple weight loss. I like all of those words. It's an accelerated weight loss plan designed to burn fat. It's not low-cal or low-carb or low-fat, so you're not hungry all the time. You aren't. You eat the right foods at the right times, and your body won't need to store them as fat. You lose weight, and you don't have to starve yourself. But don't take my word for it. Visit fastandsimpleweightloss.com and find out for yourself. Take control over the foods you eat with a plan that's realistic, safe, and gets results. That's fastandsimpleweightloss.com. You won't tell anyone else about this, will you? Your secret is safe with me. The life of a private detective isn't one that lends itself too much in the way of sentimentality. People come, people go, people stiffy on the bill. It's the way of it. And as much as we didn't like to incur the wrath of our local PD unless it was completely necessary, we placed a quick and careful call to Sabian's office, elicited a brief but heartfelt promise on the part of Vin the warehouse monkey not to touch a thing, and made tracks. As counterintuitive as it may seem, technically there was no reason to believe that Shorty McVetty's murder had anything to do with us. And that was a loophole we were counting on to protect our licenses as we raced away from the crime scene. There was no proof that it had anything at all to do with our client, his missing shipment of bats, or the mysterious interest of at least one federal agency in them, an interest that has still been largely unexplored and should perhaps be clarified at some point. Like now. What was that? That was your cue, Agent Marino. Don't hold your breath. I'd hate to see you spoil that peaches and cream complexion by turning blue and passing out. You're rude. Thank you. I forgive you because you're unusually pretty for a man. Thank you again. Oh, I didn't say I liked it. I just feel sorry for you is all. Where was I? I'd have to check my program. Ah, yes. Jack and I made tracks to the hotel where our client, Harold Lever, was staying while he awaited word of his late, lamented sporting goods. Our one lead, having recently had his brain splattered around his office by a large-caliber bullet, we didn't have much to report. But if we were going to use business as an excuse for our departure, Jack reckoned we should probably actually do some. We rolled through the lobby of the Metrolite with a quick nod at the houseman, Alf McKinney, and rode up to room 414. Jack seemed intent on persuading Mr. Lieber to make tracks back to Pawtucket or wherever the heck he'd come from, even if it meant parting with the retainer we had only so recently begun to enjoy. His love for a dollar was tempered by his unreasoning hatred for the feds, which made it all the more ironic when we found the door to room 414 slightly ajar and pushed it open to discover not our client, but a tall, too pretty stranger in a dark suit and sunglasses. Hold it, pal. Take it easy. Give me one good reason why I should. Got a badge in my pocket. Reach for it, and you'll need to get your hats custom made. What is it with you and shooting people in the head today? What? You shut up now. No one's talking to you. No way this guy is one of Sabian's boys. Look at him. 
He's got a neck and everything. What? He does seem a delicate flower, doesn't he? Which pocket is a badge in, Agent Marino? What? What? Don't both look so surprised. The boy at the warehouse said that was the name of the G-man that beat us to Shorty's place. He isn't the only one that beat us to Shorty. What does that mean? It means Shorty's dead. So which pocket? Jacket. Inside left. Drat. Hmm. There it is. Don't see many of those. Not without sending in box tops for my post-toasties. Hilarious. Nice little thirty-two. I'm glad you approve. is kind of a delicate gun, isn't it? The forty-five's nice and subtle. Mind pointing it somewhere else now that we've established that pointing it at me is a felony offense? Here we go. So what do you think you're doing in Harold Lever's room? Mind if I answer that question with a question? Knock yourself out. Who the blazes are you two? Justice and Dixon. I'm Dixon. He's not. You cops? Detectives. Private. Working for Harold Lever? That's covered by the private. Tough guy, huh? Where's your client? See what he did there, Jack? Almost tripped us up in that clever web of words, didn't he? He did. He really did. You two comedians, laugh it up all you like. If Shorty McVetty's been shot, it means one thing. Harold Lever's in way over his head. Harold Lever is chasing sporting goods across the countryside. Is that what he told you? What does that mean? It means you tell Mr. Lever that the only chance he's got is if he talks to me, and soon. The field's getting crowded. I can protect him. You tell him. I don't much like playing errand boy. Maybe you should have stayed in school. Here's the number of the hotel where I can be reached. Room 323, under Barton. Why Barton? Because Special Agent Marino wouldn't fit in the register. Don't keep me waiting. So now we were in the middle of it. No two ways about it. We had a client who was missing, or at least had the sense to duck out of the fire escape when the feds came calling. We had a G-man who expected us to produce same client, possibly on some sort of silver platter at our earliest convenience. And it was pretty clear that our client had been lying to us, which was hardly a new tune. But it never ceased to stick in my craw. We made our way back to our stylish offices for a rethink, maybe some lunch. You want to order in? I think we'd better stick to sandwiches. I don't foresee us getting our expenses on this one. We got two days up front. To do a job that's looking increasingly impossible. We can't recover the bats because he's pretty clearly not looking for bats. That the idea? It is, even if Shorty's death was unrelated. Which it probably isn't. Whatever makes five crates of sporting goods worth hiring detectives over is probably also what makes it interesting to Agent Marino. If you read the contract, you'll notice that we're off the hook if he lied to us. Since when? Since I added that line to his contract. None of this made a lot of sense, and I thought it better safe than refund. Fair enough. So we find him. Tell him that Marino wants to see him, that he can go to blazes. Not exactly the private detective's code. We have a code now. Sure, what of it? Tricks. Let's assume for the moment that those five crates of baseball bats actually held five crates worth of baseball bats. Right. When is a baseball bat worth killing for? When it's more than just a baseball bat? Right. It looks innocent enough. All American, in fact. The perfect cover. Smuggling? Explains Marino's interest. What can you smuggle inside a hollowed-out baseball bat? Diamonds? Interesting, but I'm not sure they'd need five crates worth. That's a lot of ice. It's drugs, isn't it? Probably. It would explain why someone blew Shorty's head open rather than leave him around as a clue for the next guy. These people are ruthless. So what do we do? We throw the private detective's code out the window and turn Lever over to the feds. He's bound to come running to us when he realizes he can't go back to his hotel. Jack? Yeah? I think he already did. And that's when I saw the office door, jimmied open and still ajar. A push revealed the joint in greater disarray than normal. A whimper from behind the overturned sofa betrayed the location of a cowering but unharmed king, the crime-busting dog Deluxe. 
And in the middle of the floor was Harold Lever, stone dead. Strangled by the look of things, which makes a suicide unlikely. And that, my dear lieutenant, was when the girl detective and I went off the clock. And here we are. Will it pass? More or less. Except for two things. What, pray tell? Where's Dixon? Having this same conversation across town with Agent Marino. What? I tried to tell her that you wouldn't like playing second fiddle, but she was most insistent. Get your hat! What's the rumpus? So we split the difference. I said get your hat! Now! So that's it? What else is there? Your partner went to the police? There was a corpse on the linoleum. He's funny that way. Well, that's it then. What? Case closed? As you say, what else is there? My client is dead, Marino. That usually means I'm off the case. I didn't know you got off so easy. If Shorty McVetty didn't steal that shipment himself, he knew who did. But he didn't say a word. If a two-bit hoodlum like Harry Lever didn't have a pretty good idea exactly who had his stuff, he wouldn't have made the trip down here playing honest merchant. But if he said a word before he died, we don't know about it. His stuff, huh? So it was drugs? You're very clever, Miss Dixon. It was heroin and worth a small fortune. There must be a half a dozen players on the board. It's impossible to know who caught up with Lever in your office. So you just punch out and go home? My time is my own. Unless you'd care to let me take you to dinner. Oh, my. Agent Marino, you cad. I find this line of abuse encouraging. How about this one? That feels suspiciously like a gun muzzle in my stomach. Maybe if I redirect it slightly to the south, you'll know just how much I want you to keep your hands where I can see them. Don't do anything crazy. I'll just help myself to the 32, if you don't mind. Now step back, nice and slow. What's that? My heroic rescuers, I expect. Tricks, Dixon! Hello, boys. Jack, be a deer and check Agent Marino's gun, would you? I think you'll find it loaded with soft-tip bullets. Bingo. That's what made us think it was a larger caliber that got McVetty. These dum-dums make an exit wound the size of a fist. Mm-hmm. But what brings you boys by? We had a little help. A John Doe in our morgue was just ID'd as... The real Agent Marino? <laughs> that takes some nerve. I just kept the badge for kicks. You're the geniuses that assumed I was really Marino. He's got a point. Don't he just, though? You clever dicks. We have our moments. Or at least one of us does. Hey... When I repeated the whole story for Laughing Boy here, I realized that we'd never told him how short he got his lumps. But he already knew that McVetty had been shot, which made it seem like he was the shooter, and he never said a thing to convince me otherwise. When he started getting friendly, I figured it was probably an excuse to put a bullet in my head before going after Jack, the only other person who could ID him. Remind me again, why exactly did I try and put a stop to this? Ah, Lieutenant... I didn't know you cared. Ah, Christmas. And so it went. Sure, we didn't exactly come off looking like Sherlock Holmes, but in this business, at the end of the day, you count your fingers, your toes, and the money in your pockets. Finding the heroin in the baseball bats and any other number of needles in the haystack was Sabian's problem. With the phony Agent Marina to knock around, maybe he had a chance. We had Lever's 80 bucks our pictures in the paper, and a citation from the federal government that old Squarejaw had framed and hung over my desk. Mostly to remind me that the devil we knew was usually better than the devil we didn't. Usually. 
Don't be afraid to take on the tough classes in high school. You need them to succeed in college. To find out what most colleges require, visit knowhowtogo.org. This message brought to you by the American Council on Education, Lumina Foundation for Education, the Ad Council, and KWUR Clayton 90.3 FM. And this is the Theater of the Air. Woo! It is true. The end of the Theater of the Air. That makes me so sad. But today was a good show. It makes me so sad that I want to hear the credits. Okay. The KWUR Theater of the Air is owned, operated, investigated, and catered to by David Reinstrom and David Brunel Brudman. Our executive producer this week was the man who knew too much. Funding for this week's episode was provided by the 39 Steps. David, what are the 39 Steps? What? The 39 Steps are an organization of criminals, mercenaries, murderers, and spies paid for and funded by the government of... Bang! Oh, God, I've been shot. Now to where, did that, where did that shot come from? Uh, 1995, a cheesemaker in Quebec produced the largest wheel of okay, cheese Okay, well, uh, I have to tend to my co-DJ here, ladies and gentlemen. This is David Bruno Brutman signing off. We hope you enjoyed cheddar. this week's edition of the K-Word Theater of the Air. Released after the gold rush in we'll August see you next week. It hit platinum after two weeks on the market. Oh.